Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sam Cantor, and today I'm talking with Dr. Robert Tomlinson. He's an associate dean at the Naval War College and author of the book, The Influence of Foreign Wars on U.S. Domestic Policy, the Case Study of the Yom Kippur War. Dr. Tomlinson opens his book by paraphrasing an essential question, how do military organizations learn? And there's a lot of good reasons to ask that. On the one hand, military organizations are generally thought of to be obstinate, traditional, bureaucratic, and more comfortable looking to the past than the future. On the other hand, nowhere is the failure to learn, grow, and adapt more consequential than in military affairs. Not learning invites the risk of defeat, disaster, damage to the national interest, and the loss, potentially, of service member lives. So there are a lot of theories out there that seek to answer this question. Some hold that only the crucible and pressures of wartime can overcome obstacles to learning and growth. Other theories hold that certain conditions under peacetime, like political pressure or resource constraints, provide that time and space to innovate. Dr. Tomlinson's book makes a key contribution to this debate. In exploring the lessons the Department of Defense learned from the 1973 Yom Kippur War, he offers us what we might term a vicarious learning experience. He analyzes the lessons that each service drew from this foreign war and how those lessons went on to spur innovations in doctrine and technology that defined U.S. military strategy for not only the remainder of the Cold War, but beyond. So for all those reasons, I'm tremendously excited to talk to him today. And Bob, thank you so much for being here. Well, Sam, thank you very much for having me. I'm, uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, great. I thought we could start out by going into your background a little bit, your personal and professional history, and what brought you to this topic. Well, great. I think every good book should have an origin story. And I can tell you uh, my origin story and how I came to this book. First of all, um, this is a lived experience for me. I grew up in uh, New York City. Uh, a while ago, and in a very diverse area. So I was familiar with uh, all different kinds of people. Uh, I grew up uh, around and went to school with a lot of Jewish people who were very interested in uh, Israel during the uh, late 60s and during the 67 war. So I had a lived experience about that. Fast forward in 1973, when I was a student at the College of the Holy Cross, um, this war, uh, the Yom Kippur War started. I was also interested in what was happening there. And um, I suspected that this would be a short war, and it didn't turn out to be a six-day war, something else. And I was always curious about what happened there. After that, uh, I became a uh, second lieutenant in the United States Air Force going through RTC. So this was a lived experience in how I was affected by the transformation of the military during this time period. Uh, I spent a lot of my time flying in a aircraft called the AWACS, Airborne Warning and Control Systems aircraft. And later to find out that uh, 
that innovation and many other innovations in the military were direct results of what we learned in the Yom Kippur War. Um, now, as a professor of uh, national security affairs, I think um, I am very, very drawn to the fact of how we teach our students to be smart and innovative and use this Yom Kippur War as a lesson to learn vicariously, as you said, from wars, rather than having going through the crucible of war and learn from uh, our own mistakes or disasters. And I'm also curious, before we dive into the meat of the topic, you frame this book's approach as sort of an organizational study. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that and maybe some of the literature that influenced you to take that approach? Yeah, well, this is also another origin story. I had a co-author who was an organizational expert, uh, but um, during the project, he, he dropped out. So I be became an organizational e expert in this. But I was familiar with... Uh, particularly Peter Senge, as he talks about um, what it takes to be a learning organization. And I think this helps frame the, uh, the narrative of this book, because uh, Senge uh, says that to be a learning organization, you need uh, certain things. You need to uh, have an organization that has personal mastery, that uh, has mental models, shared vision, team learning, and more importantly, systems thinking. And throughout this book, I use that as a framework to say whether or not we as a military, in particular services, learned from uh, the Yom Kippur War. So with that, that's a perfect transition to the topic itself. So I wonder if you could start by setting the stage for the listeners a little bit and providing maybe a brief narrative history of the events surrounding the Yom Kippur War. Yeah, so um, for those of in the listening audience that don't have a background in the Middle East, um, the Yom Kippur War is probably one of the defining uh, conflicts in that region. Um, we'll have to take you a little bit back from the origins of uh, the state of Israel and the uh, three wars they, they fought prior to the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Um, one that preceded the Yom Kippur War was what we call the Six-Day War in 1967, where uh, Israel uh, was able to defeat its adversaries in Syria and Egypt and, and Jordan in a handy, hand, handy fashion, um, gaining a great deal of territory, uh, in, gaining uh, territory from uh, Syria, the uh, Golan Heights, which is a very strategic place that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and for Egypt, it uh, sees the uh, Sinai Peninsula. And of course, it sees uh, uh, part of the West Bank in Jerusalem. So after that 1967 war, uh, Israel was convinced that um, its adversaries, particularly Egypt and Syria, didn't have the capability to uh, initiate another major conflict. But that calculation proved faulty in 1973. Both Egypt and Israel uh, and uh, Syria launched a coordinated joint attack against uh, Israeli forces in both the Sinai and the Golan Heights. That precipitated one of the bloodiest wars uh, 
during that period of time uh, between uh, these protagonists. And that starts out my um, really analysis of what we learned. The big thing in this war is that the Soviet Union supplied most of the equipment to both Syria and Egypt, and the United States had supplied most of the military equipment to Israel. So we got to see a laboratory of how United States equipment worked or didn't work against equipment of the Soviet Union, and that was a huge wake-up call for us. The end of the story is eventually the uh, Israelis uh, were able to tactically um, and operationally uh, be successful after some very, very tough setbacks in the beginning. Um, Egypt was able to successfully cross the uh, Suez Canal, engage in Israeli forces, and uh, really took a horrendous toll on their uh armored forces and their air forces. Uh, same is true of Syria, but uh, Israeli tenacity and their uh, operational acumen really led to the eventual operational um, victories of the Israeli forces at the end of the Yom Kippur War. Hmm. So shifting to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, what were some of the things going on in the Department of Defense in 1973 that might have made the environment right for organizational learning? And maybe we could tie that into standing up the uh, operational survey team that you write about. Right. Well, going back in history, obviously, in 1973, the United States was coming out of uh, Vietnam conflict, where Um, We did not achieve our strategic goals. And uh, the conflict in Vietnam really hurt both the United States Army and the military across the board. Um, We had a a draft uh, during that period of time. So most of, a lot of soldiers were conscripts. At the end of the conflict, the, uh, the army was really demoralized. And some of the other services also demoralized. So the, the leadership of the, the army and the services took a look around and said, A, um, how come we were unsuccessful during this period of time? And B, how can we, how can we be, become better? What can we do to uh, have a more successful military what are the structural things that we have to do to, to change it? And after the Yom Kippur War and seeing what a horrendous toll Soviet weapons took on the Israeli forces, it made our armed forces sit up and take a look and think, if we're ever to engage the Soviet Union in conflict, we better get our act straight or we have the potential of losing another war. So as you framed it, we have this significant conflict in Israel. We have this unique strategic environment in the DOD. And now perhaps we could run through some of the lessons that each individual service took from this event. And why don't we start with the army? And indeed, when historical narratives cover this period of the 1970s in the DOD, the army certainly emerges in a good light in terms of organizational learning. Yeah, I think the army of all the services that I surveyed in the book probably did the best job of learning lessons from the Yom Kippur War. Um, 
And there are a number of reasons for this. Number one, the Army probably was a service that was most affected by the, uh, the Vietnam War and probably was at its worst coming out of the Vietnam War. Um, and what the Army attempted to do is, A, look for itself to try to be a professional force. And uh, obviously, the draft ended and we started the volunteer army. And then as part of that, it systematically looked at how do we become better? How do we uh, train our soldiers better? And they revised their uh, training regimen. Um, how do we create a mental model? So our soldiers understand what it is that they're supposed to do what it is that they're training for, what's their ultimate objective. And coming out of Vietnam, uh, the Army was certain that its next potential adversary was the Soviet Union. And so to give them a mental model, that was, uh, it was pretty easy to do, to have them focus on the Soviet Union. For a shared vision, this is what the Army also did well as it created a new doctrine, it tried to make sure that that doctrine was shared with other services and particularly the United States Air Force. Um, and the army was able to develop a doctrine called Airland Battle, which incorporated the United States Air Force into how it soared or shared a vision for fighting the Soviet or confronting the Soviet Union. And then the last thing is team learning, the idea that to be great at what you do, you have to make sure that your soldiers are educated properly in uh, schools like the NCO academies for enlisted uh, uh, soldiers and professional military education like Command and General Staff College and War College. All those were um, shaped differently to focus on the adversary, which the army saw as the Soviet Union. And you talk as well about the role that personal relationships uh, played in this development. Can you expand a little on that as well? Yeah, there's a, I think, good topic in the book that talks about the importance of leadership. It's almost at the conclusion of the book, but if you read it, it kind of permeates all the way through that there were some really key leaders in the United States Army that were able to look at and understand the importance of um, the importance of this Yom Kippur War and how it affected um, the United States Army and the United States military. So I talk about that and also the, uh, the importance that these the leaders of the United States Army had with their counterparts in Israel after uh, the war. And I, I think this was a key uh, point for the United States Army, learning how to better itself during this particular period of, of time. So um, leadership is particularly important in making these organizational changes. It's uh, 
probably one of the most important things that you have to look at uh, when you look at this. And uh, one of the key heroes of this for the United States Army was General Don Starry, who is a legend, who was a legend in the United States Army for his uh, leadership in this area. So moving into the Air Force, as you mentioned, your service, can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons they drew? And I think in particular in the book, you point to this uh, realization of the damage that an integrated air defense system or IADS could do to fighter aircraft. Yeah, this was uh, very important for the United States Air Force. It was shocking. And um, so when you talk about an integrated air defense system, um, that consists of a lot of different pieces. You know, you have radars to detect it. You have uh, uh, system surface air missiles. Um, you also have the combination of ground control uh, stations, which will direct other fighters against an enemy force. And the United States Air Force looked at that, and they looked at the array that confronted them in Western Europe, where we thought we were going to confront the Soviet Union and they were taken aback. Um, the attrition rate for the Israelis during this war was so fierce that um, the United States Air Force contemplated that if we ever went to war with the Soviet Union and they had the same attrition rate, that after two weeks we would be out of aircraft. So how they went about taking, systematically looking at that and trying to figure out how we would take down those systems um, was very, very important. And part of it was a shared vision with the Army, that the Army had a, uh, a role to play in taking down these integrated air defense systems by being able to use long-range uh, fires, artilleries, or multiple launch rocket systems to hit command and control uh, nodes, and um, also using Army attack aviation to take out some of those nodes. Um, also, the advent of stealth aircraft, the F-117, was a direct result of how the United States Air Force said it would have to deal with uh, this integrated air defense system, stealth meaning that you had an aircraft that could not be detected by enemy radars or weapon systems, and it could proceed to take out command and control uh, facilities during that period of time. And like the Army did with the National Training Center, the Air Force also developed some uh, new novel ways to train specifically pilots after the conflict. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. The advent of what the United States Air Force calls red flag was also part of the results of the Yom Kippur War and the lessons of Vietnam. And it was an idea that um, the first 10 sorties of any uh, air crew during combat were the most critical ones, that if you were able to get through those successfully, first 10 sorties, your ability to survive was pretty assured. But um, how can you do that if you're not actually going into combat? So what Red Flag did was to simulate that. And it was a very intense program where we took air crews, fighter air crews, bomber air crews, even transport and, uh, and surveillance air crews. I can remember being on a number of Red Flag missions 
and we simulated uh, combat uh, during that period of time. Intense, integrated um, war fighting scenarios where we had adversaries that replicated the Soviet Union. We had weapon systems that replicated Soviet unions. And um, all the Air Force air crews were really put through the ringer um, as if they were in combat. And that helped um, the United States Air Force um, really become hone its skills in um, trying to fight any future adversaries. Very, very important for the training for the United States Air Force. And lastly, we'll move into the Navy, perhaps sometimes unfairly maligned as the most traditional of these services, and uh, perhaps appropriately the one that you point to as having learned the least lessons. But it was more than just traditionalism, as you point out. There were actually some legitimate reasons to believe that not much had to change, were there not? Yeah, exactly. Um, for the United States Navy, it was tough. As I point out in the book, if you if you look at the Yom Kippur War, and you look at what the Israelis did during the Yom Kippur War, the most success they had early in the war was from their Navy. Um, the Israelis had learned some lessons in the interim between the 1967 war and the 1973 war, where they had a major ships uh, destroyed, and they decided they would go for smaller, faster uh, vessels, corvette vessels with the uh, ship-to-ship missiles with great uh, electronic warfare, and they were successful in neutralizing both the Egyptian and the Syrian Navy early in the war. But this happened in what we would call the littorals, very close to land. And for our United States Navy, it had always been a what we call a blue water navy. So we think of ourselves confronting our adversaries, uh, Russia or any other major adversaries, in big open water. And so a lot of what happened in the Yom Kippur War, the Navy looked at and said, well, this isn't really applicable to us. But there are some things that the United States Navy uh, certainly uh, could learn. And and they did learn something. I mean, they took some of the uh, Israeli ship-to-ship missiles uh, on board, and uh, you, you see things like the Harpoon, which the Navy uses, and now advanced systems, which come out of that. But the major systems thinking about changing things never really happened for the Navy after the Yom Kippur War. And I would be remiss not to uh, ask about the Marine Corps as well. <laughs> So the Marine Corps, which is part of the Department of the Navy, did learn some uh, lessons from that. And uh, not just from the Israelis, but as I talk in my book, it learned a lot from the Egyptians about how small force, not heavily armored uh, with uh, uh, rocket-propelled grenades and also anti-tank missiles could defeat Uh, large armored formations. And for the Marine Corps, this was important because in a major conflict with the Soviet Union, um, it didn't have a a huge tank force to bring to bear. It had mostly infantry and being able to defeat any kind of armored forces was really important for them. So uh, they did learn a lot from that. And 
They also learned a lot from uh, how the Israelis were able to use their own command and control and integrate uh, things like uh, Hawk, Hawk missile systems uh, together. And they took those lessons on board. So for the Department of the Navy, I think that the Marine Corps learned probably the most from the Yom Kippur War. So aggregating these experiences that you've just discussed, can we take out a couple of perhaps generalizable insights into best practices and learning from foreign wars? And I think you pointed to some of them when discussing the Army, but why don't you expand on that? Yeah, so the big thing about learning from someone else is that you you take on those lessons, you can learn and see but to inculcate them, you have to change the way you do business. You have to look at your doctrine. Uh, you lo- have to look at your practices. And that is the key to a learning organization. It's not just good enough to, to say, oh, look what the Israelis did or look what the Egyptians did or look what the Syrians did. But look what they did and see how you can change what you do or you, you are doing to make it better. Um, And the United States Army did a great job of doing that. And uh, I think the Air Force did a great job too. We actually changed doctrine. We changed the way we did business uh, to make us a more effective fighting force. A lot of people credit um, the United States military's actions in Iraq with the culmination of lessons learned in air land battle doctrine to be able to be very successful and decisive against a, uh, a pretty big force in the Iraqi military during Desert Storm. So looking to today, obviously there are some loose parallels between the environment and the Department of Defense now versus the 1970s. And we also have, unfortunately, for the first time in a long time, the ability to look overseas to a foreign conventional war in Russia and Ukraine. And perhaps the lesson learning started even farther back with some of the combat between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So as you look at the department today, do you think that they are um, appropriately drawing lessons and appropriately undertaking the correct study of these foreign wars? And if not, how could they improve upon that? Gosh, Sam, I, I hope so. I, I, don't, I don't have any uh, any exact knowledge of this, and you know, hopefully some of it's classified. But here's the lessons that we should be learning right now. We should look at what is going on in Ukraine uh, versus the Soviet Union and what went on in the Armenian and Azerbaijan conflict and try to extrapolate Uh, some lessons out of that and um, try to look at how we might change and rearrange our forces. Here's some of the things that I I think about as a professor and talk to my students about. We can look at the war in Ukraine right now and champion the fact that uh, drones uh, work well against the Soviets and uh, Tank, uh, Russian tank systems and uh, technology has worked well. But maybe that's not the whole lesson. Maybe the lesson is that uh, the Russians are still at it and they still persist 
And um, they still have an enormous amount of capability, conventional, that they can bring to bear despite the fact that we, the Ukrainians are using advanced technology. So how do you counter that if you were to face someone like another adversary in the Pacific? Um, the idea of expenditures of weapon systems is also a lesson I think we have to learn logistically. Um, enormous amount of firepower has been used in the Russian-Ukrainian war. Can you sustain that for another conflict over a long period of time? Especially thinking that the United States of America in a conflict won't have a United States of America to get a lot of supplies and munitions from. They'll have to be on their own. How do you sustain that? How do you deal with that? Um, all these things are things I think about, and I hope our leaders are thinking about it. And the, and the last thing, Sam, on this one is for the Navy. Uh, the Army has something called the National Training Center where we practice um, major combat. The uh, Air Force has a uh, red flag. The Navy has something similar, but probably not as large scales. Uh, so it's tough to do with fleets, but maybe uh, a center similar to that so that they can practice uh, versus adversary tactics in large-scale operations. So um, those are the things I think about and lessons for the future. Well, like you, I can only hope that key decision makers and leaders are looking to these lessons of the past and reading books like yours that could perhaps inform the current trajectory. The author is Robert W. Tomlinson. The book is The Influence of Foreign Wars on U.S. Domestic Military Policy. It's a great read. I highly recommend it. And Robert, once again, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you much, uh, Sam. I really appreciate this. And uh, I hope the readers pick up the book and uh, go through it. For new books in national security, this is Sam Cantor. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.